And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Dr. David Mason back today as a guest host. Dave is a professor of religious studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. This week he gets to speak with a returning guest, Dr. Vanessa Sasson, who is also a professor of religious studies at Marianopolis College in Quebec. They last spoke about her debut novel, Yasodra, and today they will be discussing her most recent work of historical fiction, The Gathering, a story of the first Buddhist women, which is available from Equinox Publishing. Vanessa Sasson, thanks for joining me to talk about your book, The Gathering, a story of the first Buddhist women. And we've talked before because you've written other books about Buddhism. That's yes. right. Yeah, we did. The last book and the one that we talked about when we did this a couple of years ago was the story of the Buddha and his wife. Most people don't know that the Buddha had a wife, but he had a wife and he left her to become the Buddha. And so I wrote her story, which was rather tragic <laughs> and mm. sad, but I really enjoyed writing that story. So now I've written a new story. And your new story is about more women in the very early period of Buddhism. That's right. So this is a story it's historical fiction, sort of. We don't know what's historical and what's not exactly, but we can qualify this as historical fiction. And it's the story of the first women who kind of walked out of their homes to ask the Buddha if they can practice with him and what he said about that and how he handled having women show up. This was kind of the way that you became a Buddha, just walk out of your house and go into the forest. <laughs> Well, so the story goes, that seems to be the case, although the way it works out for women is unsurprisingly a little bit different than how it plays out for men. So we can definitely talk about that. Your book concerns Buddhism, like from its very beginning. Yeah. Maybe you can give us a quick rundown of Buddhism. When does it start? So the Buddhism I saw in Nepal is much, much later, and it's very different from anything that I ended up studying in the end. Buddhism is all over the world, and it's kind of spread everywhere. It was dominant in probably every country in Asia at one point in its history. It stems about 2,500 years ago in northern India and on the border of Nepal. So there's actually a little bit of an argument between Nepal and India about, you know, who owns the story, but it's kind of in that area on the plains of northern India. And so this world of India 2,500 years ago eventually created or birthed a tradition called Buddhism with this one character as its main figure called the Buddha. And the Buddha often gets translated as enlightened one, but it's probably not accurate. And it's more likely that the translation would be the awakened one. And so the notion of a Buddha is that he is someone who woke up and who saw reality as it is and not the way his mind would like to project it to be. It's kind of a way that I explain it to my students. And so he's an awakened being. And for Buddhists who told those stories 2,500 years ago, he wasn't just a guy who woke up and saw reality. He's a lot more than that. He becomes in the Buddhist imagination, almost a cosmic being, right? Who is going to teach something that's so foundational and so transformative. The whole universe is going to be sitting on the edges of their seats to listen and to be transformed by him. And so the, the stories of the Buddha and all the characters that come around him they're really quite fantastical, wonderful stories of ancient India. When we tell stories of Buddhism today, we tend to like, you know, strip it down to very secular narratives that don't have any magic to them anymore because we want to be able to relate to these stories or make him just like us. But early Indian Buddhist storytelling is actually 
truly fantastic and fabulous. Like those are the right words to use. They're colorful and they're excited and they're magical. He's like a Marvel superhero, but with like Mm. the gods jumping in and flowers falling from the sky. And he has this really elaborate story that gets told and retold and retold in the Buddhist world over and over and over again. And it's this story of his and everything that he touches, if you look at the early literature, that I came to fall in love with. When I came out of Nepal and I started studying, at first I wanted to understand the Himalayan traditions, but then I wanted to go back even further and understand the Indian tradition that inspired the Himalayan tradition. And the Indian tradition, once I started hearing it, reading it, learning it, understanding it, I was just bowled over at how beautiful and exciting and cosmic it was that this was a whole mythology unto itself and it's dramatic and it's tragic and it's every emotion under the sun is in his story and it's inspiring and it's crazy and it's fun and it's playful so these are the stories that i've been studying all these years and wanting to write and participate in in 500 bce or so south asia what's the historical political social situation in which buddhism arises that's a great question not with an easy answer we think there were probably lots of little republics small kingdoms that you know were warring with each other all the time we get references to wars in the literature a lot we tend to think of northern india at the time as being kind of classical hindu that is a very modern projection. We're not quite sure what that Gangetic area would have been doing. We know that there were a lot of, I mean, the Upanishads, the classical Hindu traditions are there, but we think there was probably all kinds of other things happening. So that India at that time was really rich with all kinds of religious and philosophical worldviews bumping into each other. And Buddhism grows out of that. And so it's coming at a time where there's a really rich intellectual world opening up and people are thinking ideas and imagining things and imagining gods and goddesses and telling stories and all kinds of rituals and ascetic traditions. All of this is kind of bubbling up in northern India around 2,500 years ago. And so it's a really exciting, rife time. I don't know that, you know, simplifying it as it was Hindu is, is a fair expression of it. I think there was all kinds of things, including what we would call today Hinduism. But a whole diversity of worldviews and beliefs and aspirations. And Buddhism emerges at the time. And so it's participating in a conversation of its moment. It feels to me from looking at the characters that you create and the way that you relate their stories in The Gathering, that there's a certain rebellious appeal in Buddhism. The society of the time and the area was socially stratified, partly under under the influence of what was developing as Hinduism at the time. And it kind of feels to me like one of the central characteristics of Buddhism is an attempt to reject the traditional social stratification of the region. I think part of it does and part of it embeds it. So why don't we look at the story itself so that we don't lose too many of our audience, talk about the story itself, and then maybe, you know, we'll we'll have a better sense of whether Which one happens? Is it radical or is it traditional? So the title of the book is The Gathering. What is The Gathering? Okay, so let me tell you the story a little bit of what happens. We have this character, this teacher in Buddhism, the Buddha, who's supposedly awake, who's this perfected being, right? This this being that the whole cosmos is excited about has finally arrived and is teaching us this kind of worldview that is free of projections and free of fear and this kind of perfected mind, right? That's really important because... 
when you see what the Buddha does according to the tradition, that's going to create a, a bit of an obstacle. So the tradition is that, you know, he was married, he was a prince. And so that that's, that was the story of my last book on Yashodara, where he's married and has a child. And then one day he escapes his palace and he goes off into the forest and he leaves his wife and his newborn child behind in his kingdom so that he can figure out how to transcend his own mind, right? How he can perfect his mind and become truly awake. And the Buddhist legend is that he accomplishes that, right? That he somehow, somewhere in the forest at some point, after years of wandering around, he frees himself absolutely and completely. And he becomes what the tradition calls the awakened one, right? And so this is when the gods explode and they are throwing rays of light everywhere. Everyone's so excited. Someone has freed themselves. And so this is a cosmic event. It's not just a world event for Buddhist literature. Can I interrupt yeah. for just a second? Because you, you say that the gods themselves are celebrating oh, yeah. Buddha's awakening. Doesn't that imply that the gods are not themselves awakened? Definitely. Yeah, I realize that that kind of flies in the face of Western expectations of gods. But in the Buddhist tradition, the gods are just kind of like flamboyant flying humans. <laughs> like they're, they're up there, they're, they're, but they're just as limited as we are. They just can be up there and we're down here, but there's not that much difference between us and them, you know, in terms of our capacity for insight. So the gods are up there flying around and they're excited and eventually the human world will be excited. And there's this, just this sense of a global cosmic community is excited that somebody has figured it out. And this also gives you a sense of how unusual, how rare it is from the Buddhist perspective that someone sees clearly, right? Which I think is very moving as an idea that like, it's so unusual to be able to truly see clearly the world as it is, that when someone does it, the entire universe explodes with delight. And when we think about how devastated our world is right now and how much suffering there is and how much war there is and how we're all getting pitched on either side of things and we all become convinced that we know what is right and it's the opposite of what the person next to us thinks we realize oh it's probably is really really hard to see clearly right and when we don't we just kill each other so huh. we probably shouldn't get too political but you just put your finger on something that it, it hadn't occurred to me or maybe i'm wrong about this so maybe you can fix my thinking that i'm just trying to develop right now in our age in which disinformation has kind of taken over we might see an analogy in the way that buddhism just regards everything that we perceive right the thing that we experience as reality is really just disinformation I think that's right, actually. I think that's exactly right. Because we're all trapped in our fears and needs and wants and narratives and personal experiences that we probably do not see clearly. In that sense, everything is disinformation. And so this unusual thing that happens of someone seeing well with no obstacles in front of their minds is such a momentous event that literally the cosmos explodes with enthusiasm. Right. And I, I do think that's worth kind of pausing and thinking about politically, socially, personally, is it's so beautiful to have a story where the main part of the story is everyone's excited that somebody sees well and the rest of us are kind of trapped and it's something to honor. So this is his moment, right? Yeah, we, we're trapped, but have a way out of the trap. Well, the Buddhist narrative is that there's a way out, but most right. of us don't get there. And so the fact that the Buddha has achieved it is something that the whole cosmos has to stop and consider and enjoy, right? It's a pleasure. So he's achieved this and the whole world knows. And 
as soon as this happens, and this is what's really important, obviously people start coming out of the woodworks going, wait a minute, what did he just accomplish? And so there's these rumors floating around Northern India. There's someone out there in the forest that has figured it out, that can see clearly, is not trapped with suffering in the mind. And so one by one, these men show up and kind of like knock on his door and say, hey, would you teach me? And the Buddha, according to the tradition, says yes over and over. And what he says is really important. He just says, come. That's like the whole invitation is just come. And so you can sit down, shave your head. I'll teach you. And there's no hoops to jump through. And there's no test to like check, right? Like there's nothing. There's just come sit down and we'll do the work together. And so one man after another shows up. Sometimes it's pairs of men. Like it's all right. There's groups of men that show up and they just kind of show up and they say, we'd like to sit with you. And he says, yes. So in this very first moment, the way to be Buddhist, if that's even a concept yet, is to, as you point out, not, I mean, there aren't hoops, but you shave your head. It's almost as though the only Buddhism that exists in this first generation is a monkhood Buddhism. No, because he does eventually go to communities and he'll teach lay people, right? So lay people's not clerics. He wanders around from town to town and people show up and the people that want to dedicate themselves will live with him next to him and basically be like monks like him. But he'll also go to communities and teach women and children. And so he's kind of spreading his teaching everywhere. But the people that are more devoted and want to really make a life of this, these are the men who then like create a community in the forest, one at a time showing up at the door. And he accepts everyone, right? And this is really important is there's even this like very famous story of a guy called Angulimala, who's this serial killer who's killed 99 people. And the Buddha says to him, come, and he does, right? I mean, the story is a little more complicated than that, but that's basically what happens, that even the serial killer is welcome to come and sit with him until he figures it out and stops suffering, right? And so everyone's welcome. And if you want to sit with him in the forest and become a monk, you're welcome. And if you want to just be a lay community, you're welcome. He just says, come. And then everything changes. A couple of years later, his stepmother, her name is, it's a little bit of a mouthful, Apajapati. She raises the Buddha as a young man. Like she's his foster mother, basically, and his aunt. And so she raises him and she takes care of him and she does everything for him. She loses him when he leaves to go into the forest, right? So she goes through all these experiences of motherhood and loss and support. And then her husband dies, the king. And so now she's a widow. She's done everything that a woman can do of her station has fulfilled all of her obligations. And so after the king dies and she's alone in the palace, she thinks, well, maybe I will go to the forest and I will ask him if I can sit next to him and practice with him too. And so she wants to become a nun. And so she steps out her door. And then the tradition tells us, this is the in the early literature, that 500 other women show up and are going to walk behind her. And there's not that much detail here. So what I imagine is like this thread of gossip <laughs> that has spread all over the kingdom. She must have told somebody and that somebody told everybody else that the queen of the kingdom is walking out the door to go ask the Buddha for permission to sit with him too. And so these women come out of their houses just pouring to go walk with her. And so she becomes this leader of the women and she walks through the forest until she reaches him with all of these women behind her. And she walks over to the Buddha and she says to him, can we join the order? 
can we sit with you as well? Right. So she's not asking to be a lay person, right? That, that was available to her. She could just sit there and like learn his teachings while living in the palace. She doesn't want to live in the palace anymore. She wants to go all the way. She doesn't want a palace life with a little bit of spirituality on the side. She wants to live as a monastic in the forest, but they don't exist yet for her. There are no women living with him. He's living surrounded by men. And so she, the woman who raised him, the woman who took care of him, the queen of his kingdom, she approaches him in all her dignity and says, we would like to do this too. And he doesn't say, come and sit with me. He says, I prefer you didn't ask the question. And so this is the story that is at the heart of my next book that I just published now. I write it as a fiction, right? So that you can just read it as a story. There's all the research in the back. So if anyone wants to understand the sources or get a, you know, learn more about Buddhism, you have all the information in the back of the book. But I write the story of what I think this woman was trying to accomplish and what it was like for her and all of these women as they approach him, thinking he might actually say yes, because he said yes to Angulimala, the serial killer. And he said yes to everybody else. But when the women show up and he doesn't even say no, he doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He gives this really weird response of don't ask the question. And so she asks a second time and he says the same thing. Don't ask the question. And she asks a third time. And even the third time he says, don't ask the question. And in India, you ask three times. The third one is a definite no, right? Like you can't go again. And so she gets three very evasive sort of no's and that's it. And that's what you would think is the end of the story. It isn't the end of the story. That scene comes very early in the book. Well, that's the first chapter. <laughs> right. Right. And so then the story is going to continue, but it's a very dramatic moment in Buddhist stories and in Buddhist history is this idea that women had the courage to leave their homes, to go see him, to say, we want to do this radical thing too. And he leaves them by the side of the road and he walks away. There's one particular source yes. for the stories of women. This text being as old as it is mm. and being principally about women, it makes it unusual, no? Yes. So that's, you're right. So there was one book in particular. I mean, I used a lot of research, but there is one really, really special book that's about 2000 years old. That's kind of tucked away in this pile of a library that is Buddhist literature, but that's been getting more attention in the last decade. It's called the Terigata, which means the songs or the verses, you know, kind of the poetry of the elder women. And what this is, is about 73 poems all put together in one volume. Each poem is pretty much ascribed to a different woman. So, you know, you have about 70 women in there because a couple of poems are by the same woman, but you basically have about 70 women and their poetry all put together and bound together in this one volume. And the poems tell the stories of the early Buddhist nuns. And so what you get in this little beautiful, tiny little book is the stories of women that we would have otherwise never had access to, where the women tell us. And we think this is actually literature produced by women, which would make it the oldest book of women's literature on earth. We don't have evidence of any other book that's quite like it anywhere in the world of such early women's voices. I mean, obviously women spoke and probably wrote stuff, but we haven't preserved it. And so here we have a collection of writing that the Buddhist tradition actually preserved and passed down for generations so that we still have it. 
where each woman tells us her experience. And so you have stories in there of women who were queens and left the palace, like Mahapajapati. You have stories of prostitutes who escaped their brothels, courtesans who left who or, or got kicked out because they were too old and they couldn't work anymore as courtesans, women who are escaping abusive husbands. I mean, you name it, we have it in that book. And so you get this extraordinary diversity of women's experiences from an ancient time all in one place. And those voices, their stories telling you what they went through and how they became free is to me the greatest gift of early literature. And so I really, I kind of lived with that book. I kept it by the side of my bed. I read it constantly. I kept going back to it. It was like my companion for the entire time I was writing this novel was getting to hear the voices of these women. And it's their stories that I put into the novel. So I found different characters that I connected to in the Terigata. And I did research on them and tried to get as much about them as I could. And then I tried to make them come alive so that they were the women who were walking behind Mahapajapati, who were asking for ordination. This central character is a courtesan, but that's a strange word in English. Why wouldn't you just call this person a prostitute? Well, because in ancient India, you actually had two very clearly different types of sex workers. You had obviously prostitutes. And it's not clear, actually, this character that I took, she was a bit of a mix of both. So I, she's an ambiguous character. But in ancient India, we do have evidence of prostitutes, obviously the oldest profession on earth, who probably lived in individual houses and just got paid on the side or in small brothels. But then we also have evidence of a kind of artistic tradition that we call courtesans, where women were raised in traditions where they would learn all the performing arts, were educated, would host kings and nobility and take care of them and entertain them and feed them and also probably have sex with them from time to time. We think actually a piece of the Kama Sutra was probably commissioned by courtesans to ensure that the information was all accurate about how their practice worked. So they were a kind of noble very noble tradition that their homes were in the center of the city. They weren't on the outskirts. So prostitutes would have had their brothels on the outskirts of the city. They were shunned. They were, this was not something that anyone looked up to, but the courtesan tradition, which probably started around the third, second century BCE, from what we can tell, was much more elaborate and welcomed and honored and was part of the performing culture of ancient India. And it was an educated, sophisticated class of women. Your central character, then, who's kind of both of these types of sex workers, both courtesan, educated in the context, having a kind of upper class background, but a history that is complicated so that she spends some time as a what we might call cautiously a common prostitute. Mm -hmm. In some ways, she represents a mix of social stations and classes. And that kind of is what the gathering itself looks like no? Yeah, I, I think you're right. So we don't know who these first women were who asked the Buddha for ordination. We know who Mahapajapati was. She, the queen, leads the pack. And then you have these women who are walking behind her. But the earliest texts don't tell us who these women were. So what I did was I used the Terigata to tell me who these women were. So I compounded literature. And in the Terigata, you get the courtesans and the prostitutes and the queens and all kinds of women together. This, to me, is really quite remarkable because... What you have is what I kept saying in the book, prostitutes and queens together. Normally, prostitutes and queens would not walk together. They would not eat together. They're from different social standings, probably had women from different language backgrounds and different 
kingdoms also coming from different parts of northern India. So they were probably at war with each other. And so you have all these young and old and high class and low class and nobility and poverty, all of this happening together in the same book of the Terigata is that all their poems are together. And I thought if the Terigata can hold all these women on the same pages and not make distinctions, then I'm going to project onto that. This is who these women were when they walked is that you had this collection of women who are pouring out of their houses that are courtesans and prostitutes and queens and homeless widows by the side of the road, pouring out of their houses to walk behind Mahapajapati and say, we all want to become free. And this is quite remarkable because in a stratified society, certain groups don't even eat together. Commensality is not something that you will see between certain groups. And yet, if they're all walking together, I'm assuming they're all eating together. I'm assuming they're cooking together. I'm assuming there's a kind of, I think this would have been quite radical, this kind of unified collection of women from all over North India, just saying, we're doing this together. And they walk to go see the Buddha in my book. And I think that's what it must have looked like. And one of the things that you see in the Terigata is that not all of the women who are in this collection of poems are all doing it because they're desperate to free their minds of internal suffering. They're not doing it for some kind of spiritual salvation. They're doing it because they're lonely, because they're trying to get away from their husbands, because they're hungry, right? And you get that in the literature, right? There's something very earthy about the book. It's not giving you this kind of magical notion that every woman is a superhero. They're telling you these are ordinary women who really need out. And sometimes they need out from their minds and are looking for that spiritual salvation. And sometimes they're just hungry. And so there's one woman by the side of the road called Chanda, and she's a homeless widow. And she stops another woman who is walking and says, and this is in the text, if I go with you, will you feed me? And the woman says, yes, of course, you can come with us. And she says, thank you. And she gets up and she walks with her, not because she wants spiritual, she's hungry. And here's these women who will take care of her. And that's also very reflective of ordinary life. Like monasteries all over the world are filled with people, men and women, who are trying to get away from a bad home life, trying to get away from a bad relationship, bad, you know, whatever it is. It's not always that we go to the religious life for some profound meaning. Sometimes we go just because that's the safe haven for anything. I find the Terigata a really beautiful text to let yourself be inspired by, because if you look at it carefully, you see something extraordinary happening in the pages of the book. Your book doesn't try to tease out all 500 stories yeah. of, of the crowd. You, you, there are a few stories that you treat in some detail. Were there any of these people with whom you particularly identified yourself? Well, the main character that I chose, Vimala, who was a prostitute courtesan, I obviously connected to her the most because I was writing her the most. And so she became the most alive to me in my imagination. But I connected to all the women that I talked about. Like they all became, I mean, this is kind of typical, but like when you write creatively, it's always a little bit autobiographical. And I think all the women in the book I identify with on some level, or I aspire to, or I just enjoy. There's a piece of them that I just, I'm enjoying. So there's one character, Bara Kundalakesa, who's this like fierce orator and debater and a pain in the ass. And well, I don't know if I can say that on your show, but, um, <laughs> but she's such a pain and she's so difficult and she's so smart and she argues with everybody and she's serious. She's one of the characters that is going because she really wants to be free. 
but her story starts with tremendous suffering. And so it does actually start from her escaping a bad situation. And then over the years, she only comes to Buddhism quite late in her life. She's really wants to know. She really wants to be free in her mind. And so I, I really admired her as a character of someone who was escaping a very difficult life, but then also became quite serious about the life that she could live and to do something exceptional with it. So she's this kind of older pain of a woman who bothers everybody and argues and she's fierce and uncompromising. And I love that she's uncompromising, right? That she has something that she needs to do and she's going to do it. So that's one of my characters in the book. And they're all different. And I guess they're all pieces of me. Vanessa Sasson, thanks for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you again. Dr. Vanessa Sasson is the author of The Gathering, a story of the first Buddhist women, which is available from Equinox Publishing. Dr. David Mason was your host today. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.